the typical Thanksgiving greeting card or commercial shows that wonderful meal and a happy family, and it doesn't show the regrets that we also carry into the holiday season. And that can be regrets about things we ourselves have done or failed to do. It could be things that were done to us or maybe something nobody bothered to do for us. It could be things that were allowed to happen to us, maybe things that God allowed to happen. And we have a choice. Is my life going to be this funeral song full of grief and regret? Or is it going to be a song of abundance and thanksgiving? And I guess a natural response would be, well, it depends. It depends on what happens in my life, right? No, it doesn't. And that should be an encouragement, but it's also a challenge. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, God, through Paul, gives this charge, and I'm going to read from the Amplified. Be happy in your faith and rejoice and be glad-hearted continually, always. Be happy always. Be unceasing in prayer, praying perseveringly. Thank God in everything, no matter what the circumstances may be. Be thankful and give thanks. No matter what the circumstances may be, be thankful and give thanks, for this is the will of God for you, who are in Christ Jesus, the revealer and mediator of that will. Now, how in the world do we do that? A good place to start is with prayer, so let's start with prayer. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for being here when we're aware of you and when we're not. We thank you for being aware of everything in our lives, including all of the regrets. We thank you that you mourn with us and that you want to rejoice with us. Lord, I ask that you would give us the grace this morning to be able to confront those regrets and to still be able to hear your truth. And I direct all of the lies of the enemy, any spiritual thing that's not from God, to leave this room, to leave these people now. In Jesus' name, thank you. If you were here in June, we've been covering the book of Colossians, and I was talking about Colossians chapter 3. And the concept was that we are God's masterpieces. Do you remember any of that? We're also tools that God uses to shape other people into masterpieces. I talked about what God does being kind of like what Michelangelo expressed. Among other things, he was very talented, but he would carve these beautiful statues out of granite. And someone asked him, you've got this great big rock, how how can you possibly turn that into something beautiful? And he would say, I see the statue that's supposed to be there, and then I chip away everything that doesn't belong. I'm paraphrasing. And that's what God does. He chips away from us everything that doesn't belong in his vision for us. Sir Thomas More, if you're from the Catholic tradition, you'd know him as St. Thomas More, was one of the top men in England, the, the King um, Henry VIII's top advisor. Only problem he uses to shape other people into masterpieces. I talked about what God does, but being kind of like what Michelangelo, advisor, expressed. Only, among other things, Charles that he was very talented, but he would carve that King Henry's beautiful studio statues out of granite. It's a guy who didn't, and someone really want. Asked him, you got this advice, great big rock. How he wanted? How can you possibly turn that into something beautiful? And he would say, and so I see that when he wanted statues to those four, his first wife, Catherine of Aragon of Spain, who he is coincidentally, and then I related to our own Mark Aragon, chip away, that's where the name comes from, everything that does, when he wanted to divorce her, Sir Thomas More said, mm. and now, God doesn't say you get to do that, that's what God does, he chips away, so King Henry the Amos, decided, well, I'll start my own everything church thing, so that does, I can make these rules and belong in his vision, and I'll set myself in for us, up as the supreme head of the church. So talk to you from the camp.
and he wants a tradition, you'd know, wanted Sir Thomas More to sign St. Thomas More in this declaration. Because we're saying that, yes, indeed, one of the top men in England, the, the King Henry VIII was the supreme, um, Henry VIII head of the top of the church, only of England, and he wouldn't draw him with that which is what landed him in the Tower of London for a long time, where he wrote some wonderful stuff. And then he got beheaded. And shortly as he was walking to the gallows, shortly before his head got chopped off, literally, he's quoted as saying, I die the king's faithful servant, but God's first. And that's what you're supposed to teach you. He said, one of the greatest problems of our time is that many are schooled, but few are educated. Education is not the piling on of learning information, data, facts, skills, or abilities. That's training or instruction. But education is rather making visible what is hidden as a seed. The word educate means to draw out, to lead out. And I've always thought about it because part of what I do is educate, hopefully. I've thought of it as somebody being in ignorance, and I lead them out of that ignorance and into the knowledge, the understanding of something. But I think his version of it is much deeper and better making visible what is hidden as a seed. And I'll give you an example of that. My daughter is in her mid-20s now. When she was three, I went to pick her up from preschool. And the teacher's aide said, well, we had a little incident with Katie today. She wouldn't share a toy with this little boy. And she wasn't complaining or anything. She was just letting me know, you know, updating me what happened that day. And so I got down on my knees, eye level, and I said, Katie, you didn't want to share the toy with Johnny, whoever. No. I said, well, how do you think Johnny felt? Sad. Ooh, and, and how do you think your teacher felt? Because your teacher tries to help all of you, right? Yeah. How do you think she felt? Sad. And I, how do you think I feel when I come here to pick up my precious little girl and I'm excited to see you and this is what I hear? Sad. And how do you think God feels? Because God loves Johnny too, right? Yeah, and how do you think he felt when you wouldn't share with Johnny? Sad. And I said, well, is that what you want? Is this the little girl you want to be? Is that how you want people to feel? She said, no. I said, so what could you do different next time? Next time I share? Okay, good enough. She already knew it was wrong. I didn't have to tell her it was wrong. She knew these things. I was drawing out what was invisible. And this is what I quoted last time. To be educated, a person doesn't have to know much or be informed, but he or she does have to be exposed vulnerably to the transformative events of an engaged human life. And I said we must be willing to be vulnerable in order to be transformed. We must be engaged. That means aware of what the master is doing and cooperating with it. And we need to cooperate even when it means killing off a part of ourselves, you know, that chipping away. So what is the master shaping us into and how do we cooperate? And today I want to examine that process of cooperating with God as he chips away stuff. And to do this, I need a case study. So I'm going to be talking about myself, not because I'm particularly impressed with myself, but because it's the case study I know best. And so this is the story of the process of going from being someone who's under the circumstances to learning how to live, and not just experience, but to live in the grace of God, in his empowering presence. That's what Clara's been teaching us the last few Sundays. That grace is not merely the unmerited favor of God, but the indwelling presence of God that empowers us to be Christ to others or she put it, that empowers us to be everything he's called us to be and to do everything he's called us to do. But first I want to look at another case study. And this is a video of somebody in the middle of going through a real crisis. That's usually when stuff is getting chipped. And it's heavy, but it's, it's important. So go ahead and show the second video. Anyway, uh, well, I didn't know there would be that touch, uh, kind of a tidal surge. But anyway, I came out here and the ditches were half full and I put a stake down there and it was just a matter of seconds when uh, that water just started gushing in the house. This was 
for So you guys just stayed here? We stayed right here and uh, got flooded, stayed in here and got bit up for, I was here, I was stranded here for two days until the water went down. Where did you eat? Nothing. For two days? I didn't eat nothing for three days. More than, more than once I thought I was a goner. And uh, especially the way that water came in, that water was just, is more powerful than people don't, don't realize. When your back's up against the wall, you know, and you're pushing your dog and a 65-year-old man up in the attic, and then when I was up in the attic, as you can see, coming down up through the attic, I, I cut myself in here because the ladder floated off. And I was going back down the ladder. I cut my ear, then he stitches my ear, and, you know, of course, there's no doctors, nobody to help you out. And uh, it's it's the, a really bad feeling, you know, especially when you call 911 and they say, they say, sir, we cannot help you. You know, you're on your own. It's it's a feeling that uh, I never want to feel again. What about the church? Was the church around? No, no, I haven't seen anybody from churches or nothing like that. No, I sure haven't. Uh, church hadn't been around here at all. As a matter of fact, the police don't even come around here right now. Uh, and thank God these people are staying right here to keep looters from there. But you know, it's just it's, it's, we're devastated, you know. And now I see. What can happen, and and uh, it's nothing to joke with. It's it's nothing to joke with. I could almost start crying now because you ain't got nothing. I mean, there's you just ain't got nothing, man. You come back like a truck, even got completely told, and starting over is pretty hard when you don't have a family. I used to have a family, but I don't have it no more. So, I just say to other people, take the warning signs. Get out. Don't play around with, with your life. Because once you see you're getting in the attic, and then you know you're out to the attic, you know things are bad. Because you don't have a second chance. You only got one chance in life. And the good Lord pulled me through it. Because, uh, there was nobody else around except him, the Lord, that could have done it. You know, and people say, well, you're a religious freak or something like that. No, I'm not no religious freak. I believe in God and I believe in different things. I don't go to church. But I'll tell you why. There's somebody up there. There's somebody watching over us. Somebody that watched over me. And, uh, and my dog and the man that was with me. And uh, it's really what i got to say unless you've got more questions. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it, man. So in those days of crisis, Toby realized a few things. What did, what did you pick up on that he realized? Hmm? Go ahead and speak up. Never alone. Who's there? God's there. What else? You only have this one chance at life? There was, but he didn't listen. He didn't listen to the warnings. And I think, you know, that's true for floods. It's also true for life. And also, he regretted not having a family anymore. Okay, so let's run through the highlights or lowlights of my life so you can understand this process of transformation. And it's like that show you ever watch, Extreme Makeover, Home Edition? It's one of my favorite shows, partly because I know that while I'm sitting there crying on Sunday nights watching it, my brother's in South America watching it and crying too, and it's just our little bonding moment, you know. Um, I like it for a lot of other reasons, but that's one of them. And they first show you a house that's falling apart, and then they bulldoze it, and then they build something much, much more wonderful. 
Okay, so let, let's do the, the before. News of, my, of the pregnancy with me was overwhelming for my mom. Some of you have heard this. She tried to get an abortion, and then she tried to induce a miscarriage. Didn't work. She then largely avoided me for three years. My nanny and my older sister were the ones that took care of me. But when I was three, my older sister was sent off to boarding school, and my nanny got married and moved away. So I was alone with my mother for the first time. And that was the end of my childhood. And I'm not being dramatic. That was, that was the end. Because mental illness caused my mom to be abusive, both physically and emotionally. So I learned to stay more than an arm's length away from people. Because that way, if somebody tried to cut me or stab me, I would have a chance to move away. And that might sound really sick, but as a little kid, I had no way of differentiating between what my mom would do and what I could expect from other people. So I just stayed, you know, at least that far away from people. I just, I'd learned that the world was a dangerous place, a scary place. And I learned not to communicate my thoughts or feelings because anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of mom. So those who are used to seeing me up here sharing vulnerably have no idea what a miracle it is that I would talk about myself at all. Well, when I was about nine, we moved to the States, where I was confronted with a relatively new language and a couple of cultures that I did not fit in with. So by the time I was 10, I started experiencing what I now recognize as clinical depression, and this led to a 25-year battle with the temptation to suicide. When I was 12, maybe 13, I started an accelerated program at school. And this meant that not only did I not fit in culturally, I was also usually the youngest one in the class. And that can be pretty intimidating. If you can imagine a sheltered 14-year-old girl interacting in school with worldly, hormonal 18-year-old men, you can imagine some of the, the stress. But hey, at least I wasn't bored in school anymore. At 15, we moved to another town, which meant another school and another church. And by 16, I was nursing an ulcer. I was sprouting gray hairs, working full-time, and drinking regularly to deal with the stress of life. At 19, I had graduated college, and I had married. And I was trying to live life as a Christian without the tools for healthy relationships. And I was still carrying, as you might imagine, a lot of baggage from my childhood. At 21, I was a military wife and mother living far from home with very little support system and even less money. And that marriage was already on the rocks then. And we'll pause there. I wasn't allowed to read the Bible until I was 16, but between 16 and 21, I read it a lot and tried to learn and absorb all I could. And I was having a hard time dealing with certain truths. And that's because, as all of us do, I had developed my identity based on the labels that people gave me. And you know, that's what we do at the store, right? If we want to know what's in a box or a bottle, you read the label. And in our country, we have really strict laws on what you can, the manufacturer can put on that label so they don't take advantage of us poor, unsuspecting consumers. But there's not that many laws about the labels we put on each other. So let me run through a list of some of the labels I wore while growing up. And I'm sure you'll be thinking about some of your own labels. Um, I've told you the pregnancy was not good news. And so that was the first label. I wonder if I can get it on my head. Unwanted. And this didn't just mean unwanted by my mother. It was communicated to me that nobody would ever want me, at least not for very long, because, you know, I was very unlikable. And I was unlikable because I was so serious and analytical and just plain boring. And so nobody would ever want to be my friend because I'm unlikable and boring and unwanted, so that means I would be lonely. And, you know, sometimes I thought I knew stuff, but I was just plain wrong. And then there was a lot of stuff that I was too much of, 
Let's see, I was too analytical, too pushy, too cold, too proud, too boring, too antisocial, too independent, too cynical, and all around clueless. And, of course, there were things that I was not enough of. Not enough fun, not enough warmth, not enough humility, not enough social skills, not enough relationship skills, not enough good looks, not enough coolness, not feminine enough by a long shot. And all of this meant that I was destined to be a failure, particularly at relationships. And when you're a failure at relationships and nobody wants to be with you, then you wind up alone. And when there's nobody around because you're so alone, then you are unknown. Not that anybody would be able to get to know me anyway because I was so weird. Well, this made it very hard to connect with the truths of the Bible about how God sees me. About how he loves me and he designed me. And he created me for relationships, not to be standing that far apart. And how he empowers me to grow in certain areas. If I am something, I can grow and get better. But see, a funny thing happened in junior high. I had a couple of teachers that let me know that they thought I was funny and I was clever. And that got me to thinking, maybe everything my mom said isn't correct. The problem was that there wasn't a whole lot of places for those things to stick because I had all this other stuff, all these other labels. But this started the process of me removing those labels and God removing those labels that were not the truth about my identity. And you've heard the Christian life described as a journey, haven't you? As the Christian walk. And walking is fairly simple. It's not always easy. Trust me, as an adult, I had to learn to walk again after an accident and some surgeries. And so I can explain it to you. First, you take one foot and you step with your right, and then you step with your left, and then you repeat. And you keep repeating. And this is how you walk. In the Christian life, it's the same thing. We talked about it in June. You put off old things. And you put on new things. And then you repeat. Right? Here's one of the problems. Sometimes, we, usually, we focus on one of the two. And so, for example, you'll see a new Christian, and they're busy putting off the old things. So they put off. But they don't put on anything new. No new habits, no new practices, no new relationships. And then they put off some more but they don't do anything new. And somebody will usually say, you know, you ought to try some new things like praying, like singing to God, like maybe silence, listening to God. Oh, no, 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 no. See, I'm good. I'm good because I don't cuss anymore. Well, and maybe you should have relationships with, with people who can coach you in this Christian walk. Well, no, I don't hang out with the bad people anymore. And, and you see where this is headed. Or else what we do is we put on. We're a new Christian, so I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to sing, and I'm going to be part of a prayer group. But what about the stuff you need to put off? And inevitably somebody will say, don't you think you ought to quit reading that stuff you're reading? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm good. I'm good because I'm reading the Bible. Well, don't you think maybe um, you should... uh, not listen to that music that makes you so violent. Oh, no, 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 it's good, it's good. I'm, you know, my wife is getting counseling. Okay. And don't you think you ought to be part of a church community? Oh, no, it's okay, I don't go to the bar anymore. And they fall. And they fall into depression. They fall into sin. They fall away from Christ because they weren't doing the two steps, the putting on and the putting off. And today I want to focus on this taking off these labels that we've worn, that we've accepted. And something I had to to come to terms with, God knows me. He knows everything about me. He knows me better than I know myself. So that means I'm not unknown. 
And others know me, too, and they even care about me. And I'm part of Jesus' body on earth, so I'm really never alone wherever that one went. There it is. Even when it looks like it to the physical eye. And I have failed. Where is that one? But you know what? It wasn't the end of the world. Even when I failed at relationships, I was so shocked the earth continued to spin on its axis. And as for being not enough, whatever that is, here. Is that it? No, no. Well, as for being not enough of some things and too much of others, I think if you look at anybody, if you're wanting to criticize, you'll figure out some things that they're not enough of or that they're too much of. And, you know, a wonderful thing happened with David, my hubby, the cute announcement guy, came into my life. I was talking to him at some point. I said to him, but, well, I know some people think I'm too much. He said, you're not too much. You're so much. And that is true for every one of you. There is so much God in you. There is so much wonderful stuff in you that if I knew you for 100 years, I wouldn't discover it all. And if you knew you, for a hundred years, you wouldn't discover it all. I think maybe that's why God gives us eternity, so we can find all of that. So you get the drift. The most important truth of all is that I am not unwanted. God the Father created me on purpose because he wanted me. Even if my conception was a surprise, I was not a mistake. And Jesus wanted me enough to die so that I could spend eternity with him. And the Holy Spirit wants me enough to be my constant companion. So sure, some people don't want me to be a part of their lives, and that hurts. But in the whole big scheme of things, it's not the end of the world. And it does not define me. So earlier I talked about what our life will be like. Will our life be a funeral song or will it be a song of thanksgiving and abundance? And I want to do an exercise now where we can actually take off some of the labels that we picked up along the way. There's some posters along the walls, and I'm going to ask each of you to go up there and get a marker. Let's see if I can find mine. And write some of the labels that people have put on you, the ones that you're ready to let go of. It could be one. It could be several. And after you do that, take a red marker. If you've been through Freedom in Christ, you may be familiar with this process. And you're going to cross off that lie from the pit of hell, as my sister would say, about you and your identity because you're in Christ. And then if you'll go to the little table next to the posters, you will find some labels that have some of the things that God calls us. I want you to just take one. You might have written a lot of other stuff, but just take one label and put it over your name tag. Something that you're willing to appropriate as part of your identity in Christ. Mine says God's girl. And also pick up some of these handy Blue papers, they have all of the scriptures and all of those names on them that you can um, look at at home. So there's enough room for probably five or six people to go at once. So you all please go to the posters. And if you have no clue what to write, ask God. He can show you what are some of the lies of the enemy, things that people have called you and that you have accepted like I did, that I would always be alone, that I would never be understood, that I would always be a failure at relationships, things like that. Write, write the lies first and then take a label. You don't have to sign your name or anything. After we all put something up there, it'll be really anonymous. Yes, the first person is brave. And redeemed. Courageous men of God.
And don't forget to cross them off. They're under the blood, as we say. You don't have to do this exercise, but I think you'll find it helpful. Hey, congratulations. You have chosen not to live anymore under a false label. Give each other a hand. I want to go back to the idea of living under the circumstances. You ever hear somebody say that? How are you doing? Well, under the circumstances, I guess. You know, I'm surviving. What are you doing under there? But for the grace of God, given my background, I would be a very bitter, lonely hermit who hates people. I mean, you could see where I would have plenty of reasons to be that way. Or I would have checked out of this planet a long time ago. But I was willing, as Sir Thomas More said, to expose myself, to allow myself to be vulnerable to the transformative events in my life. That crisis that this man Toby went through, that can either be a disaster for him or it can be a transformative event where his life is better from this point on. But I wanted to live an engaged life. I wanted to be engaged with what God was doing instead of checking out physically or emotionally, spiritually, socially. And I thank God that I'm not under the circumstances and neither is David. Because we've learned that our circumstances don't create our identity. They don't define our identity. And they certainly don't determine our ability to live an abundant life. Jesus said, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. That can include financial abundance, and that's what we tend to think of, but that's not all it means. And we tend to think, okay, if there's this much in the bank account or this many relationships or whatever, then I have an abundant life. That's not what it means. Without going into any detail, just take my word for it, David's life was, early life was even more tragic than mine. And as adults, between the two of us, we have been through divorces, and that's not just a breakup, that's the death of a relationship, the death of a family unit. We've been through miscarriages, financial ruin, lost custody of our children. We've lost several jobs. We've been through injuries, illnesses, surgeries, car accidents, name it. And yet this week we celebrated something that was as close to a postcard Thanksgiving as you could have. We had a table full of wonderful food, surrounded by people we love. And more, more importantly and more amazingly to me is that he and I were both, we both had enough emotional and spiritual and mental and physical and financial abundance to be able to share our Thanksgiving with several other people that otherwise would have been alone. That, to me, is abundant life. And that's what we're experiencing. Even though, just a couple of months ago, our house was under foreclosure. Even though we're still facing financial issues and physical health issues, those are the circumstances that didn't keep us from having an abundant Thanksgiving and having these abundant relationships. But it's been a long process, and it required our willingness to to, the, to submit to the discipline of taking those all old things off. And why do I call it a discipline? I think one of the best analogies to what we go through for healing when we come to Christ is what happens to a burn survivor. And what happens is, you know, the skin tends to start scabbing over, but that prevents the skin underneath from getting the oxygen and all the circulation it needs to heal. And so nowadays we have all these different technologies that can help remove that scabbing. Sometimes they do it with surgery. But for a very long time, the main way they would take care of these deep burns was to scrub off that scab. And they would scab again and scrub it off again, which, as you can imagine, hurts like crazy. But that's what you need in order for the, new skin, the skin to be able to, to heal and grow. And generally, that has to be done by somebody else. It's not really something you can do to yourself. I don't care how tough you are. Well, the healing of emotional and spiritual burns is very similar. 
So just like I didn't put on all those false labels by myself, somebody helped me with that process. Somebody wrote those labels. I just accepted them. I couldn't take them off by myself either. I needed other people to help me understand the truth of God's word and to help me learn how to get rid of those labels. And basically, they were scrubbing off all the hard places, all the places where I was tough, so that that healing could happen. Um, And so God wants us to go through that process of healing as part of a spiritual community, not to try to just do it on our own. And over the years, our church has been particularly good and gifted at that process. But there's a couple of things that happen sometimes when people are going through that process You know, once you scrub off that scab, that skin is super tender. You just touch it, it probably hurts a lot because it hasn't quite finished growing yet. And so sometimes when somebody's going through the process where they're receiving some healing for some old injuries, get rid of all that tough stuff that kept people away, right, and kept them from being hurt. But they haven't quite learned yet to live with Christ's empowering presence. And somebody will bump into them, and they will get super hurt, super offended, It's not that what the person did was that bad, but they're just so tender still. And so they'll go away. Sometimes they go away for a while and they come back. Sometimes they just go away. The problem is the scab grows again, and now you've got to go through the scrubbing process again or risk losing that part of yourself. Some back out, they don't even get that far. As soon as they feel a little pain or discomfort, I'm out of here. Pain, bad, can't possibly be good, out I go. And some actually go through the process. They get healed up. They're stronger, healthier, spiritual, emotionally, all that. But it's hard to be in a place that reminds you of that old self and all those old injuries. I personally don't particularly enjoy going to hospitals. And I am reminded of what I went through there. I have not set foot in a physical therapy clinic since the year and a half I spent getting physical therapy. And so... Even though they've healed here, they move on somewhere else where nobody knows the previous scarred up them and where they can go on to the next phase of their healing, hopefully. And that can be really, really hard for those of us who are trying to administer that healing. I personally couldn't do that burn patient therapy, burn therapy stuff. I couldn't do it. I mean, as soon as they squirmed, I'd be out the door. I, just, I don't have the fortitude for that. I really admire people who can do that. And I'm learning not to take it personally when I'm trying to help someone with emotional healing or spiritual healing if they start to scream because it hurts. It, they're not screaming at me even though it feels like it. And if they run away, that makes me sad because I love to see people get to that point where they're healed and they're free of all this garbage. But I understand that what they're fighting is God, not necessarily me. It's this process with God, and it's a hard process to go through. There's the scripture, I think, in Ephesians that says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and so forth. And we usually use it when we're having trouble with someone. Okay, my problem is not with David. It's evil stuff that's influencing our relationship, right? It's, the enemy is the enemy, not the person. But that's also, and that's what the verse means, but I've also learned our struggle is not against flesh and blood sometimes when somebody's fighting God. God is trying to bring them healing. God is trying to bring them maturity, and they are fighting him. And it sure feels like they're fighting me because I'm the one they're screaming at. But their struggle is against God. And if I want to be part of this process, that's something I just agree to partner with God in this. So if you've had a particularly difficult Thanksgiving, or even if you didn't, if you just find that whole idea of being thankful kind of out there given what you've been through, I want you to do a couple of things. Look at, and and do this, you can do it now, but spend time with it at home. Look at this list of the things that God says about you. And look at the corresponding scriptures. And you're going to have one of two reactions. Either you'll say, that's right, amen, I'm forgiven, whatever. Or you'll say, somehow I just don't connect with that. And when there's something you don't connect with, then say, okay, this is the truth. It's from the word of God. It's the truth. What is the lie that's keeping me from that adhering? 
And I can pretty much guarantee you, you cannot do this exercise alone. Maybe if you've been on this journey for a long time and have done a whole lot of putting off and putting on, you might get some benefit from trying this alone. But in general, I think you're going to need to pray and talk with somebody and share that part of the journey with them. To me, it's obvious that Sir Thomas More went through this process because he got to the point where he was able to pray to God to help him, quote, to think my most enemies, meaning his worst enemies, to think my most enemies my best friends. For the brethren of Joseph could never have done him so much good with their love and favor as they did him with their malice and hatred. And he's talking about a group of brothers who wanted to kill their little brother, but instead they settled for just selling him into slavery. And while that was a horrible thing to do, I'm not saying that was good, it did set Joseph on the road to a place where he could save all his people. And he was able to say to his brothers, don't you see, this is from the message, Genesis 50:20. don't you see, you planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for my good. As you see all around you, you uh, as you see all around you right now, life for many people. And there's a place where we can find every regret can be turned into a reason for thanksgiving. So, for example, if you were to ask me, okay, Marianne, if you could start your life over again, do you want to go into an abusive home with a mentally ill parent? No. No, I'd, I'd rather not. However, through the process, at the end of my mom's life, I was the one of the three kids that was still in the same town as her. And even though I think you would have understood if I wanted nothing to do with her and said she didn't deserve me as a daughter, because I was walking with God, I got to the point, and she got to the point, where we were able to finally, in her last year of life, get her some psychiatric care, and she was balanced enough to have a real relationship. And we had a very sweet, very close relationship that last year. I would not have that memory. I'm very thankful for that if I hadn't stuck it out. And if I hadn't been through the abuse, I wouldn't be able to comfort some of the people I can comfort now. I'm not saying the abuse was a good thing. Don't hear that. What I'm saying is that God can turn even that into something that's cause for thanks and praise. And he can do that with every single thing in your life. Trust me, I've kept testing him. Yeah. Here's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the message version. Paul saying, you know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. We teachers, preachers, whatever. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized, but God hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we haven't broken. What they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial, torture, mockery, and murder. What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. We saying, I want to see you glorified. I don't think that happens. Just at the end of the ages when all the angels gather and sing, he's glorified in our lives in our darkest times. Our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. Then he goes on, we're not keeping this quiet, not on your life. Just like the psalmist who wrote, I believed, so I said it. We say what we believe. And what we believe is that the one who raised up the Master Jesus will just as certainly raise us up with you alive. Every detail works to your advantage and to God's glory. More and more grace, more and more people, more and more praise. To the extent that I cooperate with God, every detail of my life, even the really ugly ones, works to my advantage and to God's glory. More and more grace, more and more people, more and more praise. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see now will last forever. 
So whatever you have suffered, whatever you regret doing or not doing, whatever it is that the enemy has used to tell you that life isn't worth living or it's not worth it to try to have relationships with other people, all of those things can be regenerated into thanksgiving. And to be practical, the key for me, every time I'm going through something very painful or difficult, and sometimes it's things that happened in the past and I'm going through it again, I'm remembering it, or if it's happening now, this is what I, I ask. How can I allow God's power, his grace, to flow through me in this situation? And I ask God that. How can your power flow through me in this situation? How can I position myself? I'm going through this anyway. How can I make it so that your, your power, your grace can come through? And you've already done some of that today by taking down, writing down and crossing off those old labels and rejecting them and accepting what God says your identity is. Your identity, your understanding of who you are, is the basis for how you react to the world. So we need to do whatever it takes to get that right understanding, what God says. I'll give you a little closing story. And there's a man in New York who's been working for years now to determine whether this painting that's been in his family for like 400 years is an actual Michelangelo. They've had it wrapped up behind the couch. And he retired from the Air Force, and his dad said, okay, now that you have all this free time, why don't you go find out for sure whether it's a Michelangelo. And at first, the big museums wouldn't even look at it. But then one of the art experts that finally examined it, they used X-ray and infrared and all that, is convinced that it's the real thing. It'd be worth like $300 million. Part of, yeah, part of the reason, Jesus is in it, actually. <laughs> yes, so is Mary. A couple of little cherubs, it's, it's a Pieta. Anyway, um, when he analyzed it, he found that there are unfinished parts to the painting. And he says, this has to be the real deal because nobody pays for a painting that's not finished. And nobody copies a painting that's not finished. It wouldn't make sense that this would be a copy. And it's interesting because Jesus did. He paid for an unfinished masterpiece, each one of us. So if you're an unfinished masterpiece, that doesn't mean you're not a piece of the master. And if several parts of you or your life have had to be done over, that's okay, too. Because this Michelangelo, when they do the infrared, they can see the places where the artist wasn't satisfied with how a knee or something turned out, and so he redid it. So as we go our way today, I want you to allow God to keep reworking those parts of your life so that you can have that life of abundance regardless of the circumstances. So I'd like to ask the people that have been trained in prayer to stand around here so that if somebody needs prayer about this, if some feelings have been stirred up, um, we can work with you on that. Um, and right after David says something, the rest of you can go, but I want you to check out each other's new identities before you go. Yes, Mr. Announcement Dude. Uh my own okay a uh, couple things real quick one is um, you know the purpose of teaching is equipping the saints and through this something just struck me it, this exercise that we just went through it's not just for now you can take this with you you can have this now for the rest of your life so any time of any day no matter where you are you're on a plane you're at work you're at school, you're asleep and you wake up in the middle of the night, whatever, whatever, and you get that thought in your head of that label, write it down. If you don't have a red pen, it doesn't matter. Just say, I've marked this out with the blood of Jesus or whatever. The point is, you have this to use anytime you want to or need to. The other thing is that, um, you know, we, we saw Marianne put all these labels on her, right, all over. And, of course, that took time. It didn't happen over, you know, all that didn't happen at three, you know. And it's going to take time for all that stuff to come back off. Part of it is, you know, we have to stay engaged with the process. 
but um, you know, Clara's been teaching the last couple of weeks about the word grace and how it means power, to put it succinctly. It's why. What's it unto? Let me let me let me demonstrate. Now we can get our healing a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. Okay? And that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. Or we can get it a lot at a time. A lot of time. Now would you rather take fifty steps or two? Well, the 50 steps do, too. I mean, you take a Band-Aid off. I mean, it just, you know, is it better just rip it off? Or a little bit of time, it still hurts about the same. Here, here's, the, here's where the power comes in. It's only by God's power that these two steps can, that it, this can happen in two steps. And so where she took one label off at a time, in a, when the power of God comes, when there's a power encounter, maybe, who knows? It's up to the big guy to determine. Five or ten or fifteen or twenty of those things that come off at once. And so that's why we need the power of God in our lives. Thank you. Remember, what he says is true about take, crossing off those things, but when you put something off, what do you need to do next? Put something on. So don't just reject those old thoughts. Look at what God says about you. Embrace that truth. And as to the question of, do you want to take little steps or big steps? I'll tell you what hurts. What hurts is somebody who's been a Christian for 40 years, and they've only gone this far. And they've crossed paths with thousands of people since then and couldn't offer them much. That hurts. Looking back at your life, that hurts. Don't do that. Stop. Okay, so if you need prayer, come up. And if you can pray, come up. And if not, go have a great week, but check out each other's new identities. Thank you.